totally at the World Cup. Come, we have missed Unbelievable, unbelievable this. Day four in Russia, and it's Hello Chucky, as Mexicans make beating Manshaft look like child's play. 1-0 over Germany. We get Rafa's take on the gothic horror and discuss today's other shock, Switzerland-Brazil 1-1. Taxi for Miranda, as Brazilians fail to pick up other teams' Zuba. All that plus a look forward to Monday, Sweden-South Korea, Belgium-Panama, and yes, Tunisia-England. It's the Totally Football Show, totally at the World Cup. Hello everyone, it's a brand new week and what a scintillating start we're having to this World Cup in Russia. Jack Lang's back. Evening. Michael Cox is with us. Hi James. And so's James Horncastle. Hey. Nice to see you guys. Interesting. Here we are, what is it, four days in now to this World Cup. We've yet to see one of the big teams, yet to see one of the big names really perform. I think of the favourites, only France has had a win and even that was only just... Yeah, it's been very exciting. I mean, there's barely been a, a bad game. I think even the games that seem to be meandering to a nil-nil produced a late goal. And as we've seen today, two really surprised results. I mean, particularly the Germany result. I mean, Mexico completely outplayed them in the first half or hanging on in the second half. But uh, that was Germany really outplayed for the you know majority of the game, which I don't think any of us saw coming. Right, a bad day for the hairs. And a, a, I was going to do a terrible link with Neymar there. Also didn't have a good day because the one-one draw with, with with Switzerland. Does this mean, James, that the likes of England and Belgium could start to look at this tournament with a little bit more of a glint in their eye? Perhaps, particularly with that uh, with that Germany result, because I think England might want to be maybe runners up in their group now, because I think that would throw up a real possibility of of getting to the semi-finals if Germany don't recover and top their group. Because mm. you know if they were if they were to play what Brazil. In the, in the round of 16, which we don't know if that's going to happen because of what Switzerland did tonight and basically holding the Celis out. So it feels a lot more open than it, than it did on the eve of the tournament. Absolutely. Jack, what was your best bit of this Sunday's action? Mexico's performance, I think. They were, really? showed a great deal of heart. And actually, the, the scenes on the final whistle, Javier Hernandez in tears of joy at their achievement. I thought that was really touching and really nice to see them doing so well and I hope they can maintain it. I like Mexico and I was I was staggered actually how much emotion came pouring out when that whistle blew. For sure. Yeah, I think you could see what it meant to them. It's a team that we know their difficulty in getting further in the second round. A lot has been made of it. A performance of that magnitude was not expected of them. We underlined yesterday the issues they've had coming into the tournament with scoring goals. That I think maybe a problem later in the tournament, but against Germany, they were so determined and so organised, really, and very pioneering going forward when they needed to be. Well, they certainly scored at the Luzhniki. Mexican commentators going loco, probably quite literally down in Acapulco there <laughs> for that. 
All right, let's uh, just round up the scores on Sunday. Mexico beating El Tri, defeating the Manshaft 1-0 at the Luzhniki. The goal from Hoving Chucky Lozano in Group E out Eastern Samara. Brilliant free kick from off-duty Vickering's Kolarov made Serbia 1-0 winners in a lively affair with Costa Rica. While in Rostov, way down south, a shock 1-1 draw between Brazil and Switzerland. Got to start, though, with Mexico. A couple of tweets here from listeners. Paul Scholes is my hero. Will Germany ever win in Russia? And Bruce Keith Miller, whatever they did at Hernandez's party, seems to be working. Well, yeah. How did we get this so wrong? How did we not see this coming? I think um, their build-up was underwhelming. Remember, in their final game, Azorio was booed and they were calling for him to be out. And they, they'd been preparing for this game for a year. They lost 4-1 to Germany in the Confederations Cup last year, and that was Germany's second-string team. And all the kind of year has been preparing for this one game, and it looked like they were going to be very defensive and a bit negative. They were going to basically play a centre-back in midfield to try and stop those German number 10s between the lines pulling the strings. And instead, we got something that was completely the opposite to that, where they were very gallant, unafraid of Germany, and uh, cut through them over and over again and should have scored more goals. Well, they booed the Mexico manager, but who's Osorio now? <laughs> That's the question. Let's, I bet Rafael Honigstein is, actually. Let's, let's dial up our pal Rafa and see how he's taken things. I'm still there trying to locate Germany's midfield. <laughs> I haven't found them yet. Mm. I like to say there's a word for the way they played, Vogelwild. Yeah. <laughs> nearly, nearly, James. Vogelwild, Vogelwild. What, what does it's it mean? Sharp B. It means uh, literally wild as birds. So um, I guess headless chicken is probably the best, <laughs> best explanation, best translation. So what happened to the chicken's heads? The chicken's heads were devoured by the Mexicans and they left Germany completely disheveled in midfield. It was very, very interesting speaking to the players they all said we were surprised. We had analysed Mexico and we knew them to press high up the pitch and then play a possession game. And of course, Mexico did the exact opposite. They didn't press. They waited for Germany to come forward, then um, won the ball back and immediately with quick counterattacks went into that huge space that the midfield had left. And as much as the Germans were surprised just how... Mexico kind of changed their setup a little bit. They were also really annoyed with themselves because they had warned themselves after the experience of Saudi Arabia, the 2-1 in the friendly, to not do that, not leave spaces, make sure that you don't lose the ball in stupid areas, make sure that the midfield is ready to protect the back four. But you saw so many times Boateng and Hummels having to go into must-win 1v1s 50 metres away from goal with absolutely no one uh, near them. And Boateng said afterwards, uh, we were really, really alone out there. That run of poor results for Germany in the pre-tournament friendlies, do we start to look on that in a different light after today's game? I think we have to. I mean, these were warning signs, but the warnings have not been heeded and the story has kind of replayed itself to a certain extent. There's a lack of cutting edge, there's a lack of tempo. There is a lack of cohesion in the middle. I think that Kadir and Kroos are no longer the answer by themselves. I think they need help or perhaps a diff slightly different setup. And 
we have to, I think, we cannot quite believe in Löw's confidence as much because he was saying, you know, friendlies, yeah, don't worry. We will turn up when it matters. But now one game down, Germany haven't turned up. And now they've put, them, put themselves under real pressure because if they don't turn up the next game, they can go home. Interesting. Or it could just be a plan, though. Finish second and you get to play Brazil again. Well, that's only if Brazil win the group and not Switzerland. Rafa probably will have been away from all of this, but naturally a lot of the English coverage in the TV studios after the game has been, where is Leo Sane? Again, thinking that he could have perhaps uh, provided something that others didn't today. Although I thought Julian Brandt, when he came on, actually played, played pretty well. Yeah, he did. I mean, look, I think from a Anglo-Saxon perspective, this World Cup was always going to see, be seen through the prism of Leroy Sané to a certain extent. If Germany had won it, they said, well, look, they're so strong, they don't even need Sané. They don't win or play bad, they say, oh, why didn't they pick Sané? It's not really the debate that's happening in Germany. In Germany, people are much more worried about players like Kroos, players like Ozil, players like Kadira, Müller, who had a very poor game, players who've been the backbone of this team not turning up. I mean, Sané being there might have helped but you still need a functioning team and Germany as a team have not been functioning over those last few weeks and you saw today this was not a fluke this was not a, uh, a hard luck story of a team dominating and not taking the chances and uh, conceding a fluke goal this was Germany not functioning certainly not in the first half and that that is almost a bigger shock than the result itself. Does Love have the, the squad to sort things out for the second game? Well, what's Love got to do with it? That is, the, <laughs> that is the question. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey, so let's talk a little bit more about Mexico. Do you see them, do you see them following this up with more successes? Can they take this group, Michael? Well, I think they're in a very strong position now, yeah, having defeated the, the strongest team in the group. I was really impressed with Mexico. I think it's the, the best executed tactical game, uh, game plan we've seen so far. Particularly, I thought Carlos Vela, who I've always thought of as quite a flaky, flair-based winger, did a really good job on Tony Cruz. And, and you don't really often see Cruz marked out of a game like that. And the way that they sprung forward at transitions as well, I mean, if they'd made better decisions on the counter-attack, they should have scored three or four goals. What was the game plan? Well, mainly I would say Vela on Cruz. I mean, Vela, I expected to line up on the on the right flank. Germany were playing Plattenhardt at left back. I must say, don't really recall him ever really having a great attacking game before. And so they almost disregarded him and, and Vela was coming inside and marked Cruz. And I think the key was really how quick they were at the, t- at the turnovers. It reminded me a little bit of the way Jurgen Klopp used to set up his Dortmund side to play against uh, the Bayern teams when the Bayern had had loads of possession and Dortmund would just spring forward quickly. And, you know, I'm not surprised at what Rafa says Hummels and Boateng were complaining about because the fullbacks just vanished. Kimmich seemed to play as a centre-forward for half the game and, and the midfield as well. And it was there was so much space in, in the channels on the flanks when, when Mexico counterattacked. And like I say, there were you know moments where Ozil popped up at right back when he was trying to defend the goal. That was when Kimmich was trying a bicycle kick as a centre-forward, <laughs> which Phil Neville lost, lost his mind about. And I, the one player I was really impressed by, and I always am when I see him for Mexico, is uh, Javier Hernandez, right. who in this country we see him as just a poacher, and he's clearly very good at that. But whenever I see him for Mexico, he's coming deep, he's dragging players out and running in behind. I thought his all-round centre-forward game was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I also really was impressed with the midfield pairing of Guardado and Hector Herrera. I thought they were really good. They overwhelmed the German midfield, really. There was actually 
seismic activity recorded in Mexico when the goal went in, <laughs> which I think was appropriate Brilliant. because Mexico's midfield looked completely shaken without a holding man there. Mm. We remember, you know, Cruz and Kadira doing well in the last no World Cup with Schweinsteiger behind them. Mm. Here, no one there, and I think Kadira especially cannot really play in a two, especially when uh, the other team is flooding all over them. They'd warned us about Lozano, apparently a big target for all sorts of clubs now, but he looked pretty sensational as well. Yeah, he was good. I like the fact he could go either way. He could go down the line or he could come inside. And I think he had a chance inside about two minutes, didn't mm-hmm. he? And, and from then on, uh, he was the main threat, really. He was, um, yeah, outstanding. But I thought pretty much all the Mexican midfielders and attackers were excellent. They were holding on late on. You know, I think Germany maybe did enough to get an equaliser in the end, but you need a bit of luck. And uh, and they got it, so fair play to him. Well, the talk after this game was all about how this puts Germany in line for second spot, which would in turn set up a last 16 meeting with oh my word, Brazil, something the Brazilians obviously took seriously because they they promptly went and drew 1-1 with Switzerland in a desperate bid to try and avoid the Germans in the last 16, Jack. What what happened against Switzerland? I think there was never really a part of the game in which Brazil built up a solid attacking rhythm. They pressed, especially in the latter stages, having conceded, they built up a little bit of a head of steam. Prior to that, I think they were patchy, really. They... Looked good on a few occasions coming forward, especially when they were transitioning quickly from back to front. There were a few attacks when they kind of bypassed the Swiss midfield. Other than that, Switzerland, I thought, played it very well. We knew how they were going to play and they thought they executed very well. They dealt with Neymar more often by foul means than fair, but that's a part of it at this level. Neymar suffered 10 fouls and, to be honest, didn't really look quite up to speed, I thought, at times. We know that He's probably not going to be at full fitness until the knockout stages. And I think Switzerland were the the chief beneficiaries of that this evening. But having said that, I don't think it's all doom and gloom for Brazil. Chicha said in his pre-game press conference that it wouldn't be a disaster if Brazil drew this or even lost. In fact, he said the performance is the most important thing. He didn't quite get the performance either, but I don't think there's any reason to panic. And uh, I'm sure he'll be keeping their feet on the ground. A lot of discussion on social media right now about who Neymar currently most resembles Melisande is probably the the closest. Do you think that's fair, James? Yeah, that or poured a pot noodle over his head or something like that. Or it's like a a cat is sat on his head on a bike. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. other news from that game, Alisson having to deal with a giant red inflatable ball, which luckily, when he burst it with his studs in pretty efficient fashion, turned out to be full of air, not water. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, also in that group earlier today... In Samara, surprisingly lively encounter between uh, Costa Rica and Serbia. That's what it says here. I wasn't able to see this. What did I miss, Michael? Yeah, it was quite lively. I think uh, Serbia were the better team. Mitrovic played very well up front but missed a couple of chances. And then they relied on uh, a wonderful free kick from Alexander Kolarov. I mean, I don't mean to sound wise after the event, but if you want anyone in that situation, it's Kolarov, isn't it? From that tight angle, he gets the dip, he gets the curl, he gets the power. And Kaylor Navas, who I have some reservations about, but is definitely a great shot stopper. I couldn't have done anything about it. It was a wonderful goal. I must say, I thought Costa Rica actually played very well. Mm-hmm. Um, their possession play was good. They kept their shape well. I thought when they brought on Bolaños after about an hour when they're chasing the game, he just adds that finesse and played good passes into the final third. They've got such a settled side. It's almost the side that, you know, shocks Italy and England and Uruguay four years ago. What they're lacking now is Campbell and Ruiz. 
haven't really played a lot of football over the last couple of years and hasn't been at high standard. And I thought Campbell in particular looked really rusty. But it was, again, it was a good game. It was the kind of game, you know, first one on a Sunday after we've had four games a day before where you think maybe this will be a bit sleepy. But it's barely been a bad game in the tournament so far. And this group looks like being especially tough. What about uh, Milinkovic Savage's first competitive game for the national side? Not a bad performance. No, not bad. I mean, Michael said uh, Mitrovic played well and perhaps should have scored a couple of goals because Milinkovic, towards the end of the game, put him through with a couple of very nice balls over the top. Um, some really good combinations there. It's very attacking Serbia team, um, I thought, with Milinkovic and, as the 10 and Matic Milivojevic behind and then Lajic on the left and, and Tadic on, on the right. When they got the goal, bizarrely, they seemed to just get very complacent and almost uh, play for the 1-0 win. And that seemed to almost play into Costa Rica's hands. But I thought it was good. But again, Kolarov, for, for me, just you know, he got nine points for Roma this season just from free kicks you know, because they were able to shut out the opponent and just win 1-0. And you know, in competitions like this, you've got guys who can score free kicks. As we've seen already in this competition mm-hmm. so far, it's a big plus. And that's one thing that maybe, Michael, you feel England... Lack. Well, yeah, I think uh, dead ball deliveries. I mean, you look at England over the last 20 years and England have scored a lot of headed goals from corners, you know, with Beckham and then later Gerrard delivering the set pieces. I actually went through the stats because I'm very sad in many Sorry. ways. Yeah. <laughs> in many ways. But if you, I mean, particularly when it comes to corner kicks. But if you order the, everyone who played in the Premier League uh, this season by the number of corners they took, you have to go down to 39th place before you find anyone who's in the England squad, which is Rashford, who's not going to start. So I've got this slight theory that Southgate's made changes in, in the wing-back areas and brought in Ashley Young and to a certain extent Trippi or maybe Alexander-Arnold because we need someone to take the corners. Right. Two years ago... Okay. Well, two years ago, exactly. That was He was the full guy. But who else was there? There's, there's no one in the side that takes set pieces. So it's a big issue in tight games. With Colorado's free kick, we're actually up to three direct free kicks in this tournament, which equals already the number that was scored at the last World Cup. Right, so and it's Kolarov, the uh, very special one from... Alexander Golovin Chris- oh, right, and of Cristiano Ronaldo. So that's three. But the question is for my guests and for listeners is who scored the three in 2014? There you go, listeners. That's the question from Jack Lang. Who scored the three direct free kicks in the World Cup in Brazil. Jack, you'll be giving us the answers later on? I will. Super. All right, also coming up later on, more England chat, plus a bit of a word about why Tunisia might not be the easy debut game that you might, you probably don't, listeners, but others think that it is. We'll be finding out about Sweden and all sorts of other things to do with Monday's games. Sun, sea, sand and football. Watching the World Cup on holiday sounds like paradise. Until you try watching a game online and realise seconds before kickoff that it's blocked. Well, instead of bemoaning your decision to book a trip during a tournament that comes around once every four years, you need to get yourself a virtual private network from bestvpn.com and you'll be able to access the internet freely wherever you are this summer, all for less than the price of a pint. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can get 70% off a VPN by visiting bestvpn.com slash podcast. Bestvpn.com will set you up with a VPN in minutes so you can watch the football from your deck chair or by the pool. And when it comes to security, bestvpn.com will also protect your internet activity from prying eyes on open Wi-Fi networks. No matter where you are in the world, you can access your online home comforts with a VPN. So unlock the internet today with bestvpn.com. Find out more and get 70% off by heading to bestvpn.com slash podcast.
So, Monday's action. The other two from the Germany-Mexico group, Group F, Sweden and South Korea, will face each other in Nizhny Novgorod, the city east of Moscow where the famed Volga River converges with the Oka, where the writer Maxim Gorky was born, for years a closed city to safeguard the Soviet Union's military research and production facilities. From Group G, meanwhile, Belgium take on Panama at the Fish Stadium in Sochi and Tunisia, England, the Volgograd Arena in Volgograd. Hello. Mmm, 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 mmm. Let's open up a fat can of Tunisia, England. For the latest on Gareth Southgate's boys, we join now Anton Tului from Sky Sport News, who is embedded with the England team and I think has just emerged from Gareth Southgate's press conference, the lucky chap. Anton, how's everything going there in Russia? Well, Volgograd is hot, it's sticky, and there are thousands of flies in the evenings that come and attack you. While you're trying to broadcast live on television, which is always fun. But, um, no, it's a fascinating city. This game coming up against Tunisia, I think a lot of people think it's it's an easy-ish start for England. But we're about to discuss the fact that the uh, Eagles of Carthage might be a bit more difficult than people think. Are, are England team of that opinion too? Yeah, very much so. Since they've been out in uh, in Rapino, in the, in the north of the country, that's when their focus on, on Tunisia has been very much been underway. And one thing you notice about Tunisia is their size and they're physically kind of kind of a big team, especially especially their defence, and they're going to play quite defensively as we expect as well. So to break them down, it's really difficult for England, and that's always been a problem. You think when England played Tunisia sort of back in France '98, breaking down was always a problem in the opening game, and. And that's why Gareth Sackett is going to go for this kind of fluid attacking front four, not only because it fits his philosophy, but also because it means they can potentially get an early goal. It means they can, they can try to excite, which is what they've been trying to what the players have been telling us for the past two weeks is all they want to And it's weird because there's a bit of a, a bullishness about Gareth Sackett and Harry Kane that came across in their, in their pre-match media conference that, you know, they really feel like they, they want to show the world what they can do, not in a... Not in a not what we've seen in the past, where just very good Premier League players turn up to the turn up to the World Cup and we expect them to be good. These guys feel they've got a point to prove, and they're actually, I think, they're actually quite pleased that they're coming up again against a team like Tunisia, who are tricky, who may will make it difficult for them, and they really do feel like they're up for a, up for a bit of a scrap. In the meantime, back at base at Rapino, a lot of talk that the players have been having trouble sleeping. It's utterly bizarre when you're up there. You get three hours of darkness every night so that it doesn't get dark and just after midnight really and then it, the sun's up and so you pretty much everybody journalists the backroom staff everybody's been waking up effectively about four o'clock in the morning and then sort of just doddering around and trying to get your head in the right space and then you eventually fall back asleep again regardless of black, black, um, blackout lines and that kind of thing it's the one thing that the fa couldn't prepare for everything else in repeat is, is exactly what they want the temperature's perfect it's about 20 Celsius most days the facilities are nice. Security is great. It's got a, it's got a kind of almost like a, a centre park feel to it, effectively. In terms of, it's very sort of pine forest laden, laden, and it's, it's got that kind of feel to it, effectively. The west rest of the world could be burning, and you wouldn't know because it's just an isolated little area. Unbelievable! Unbelievable! This. Yes! 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 Well, there you go. Then that's interesting from from Anton. England staying in a kind of centre parks meets a CIA black site sleep deprivation centre. That's that, surely that's got to impact badly on the team's performance. As long as there's Love Island, I love it. I love Anton. <laughs> I, love, I love Anton's notion that you know, this is one thing that the FA absolutely couldn't control. 
picking a place where they might have only uh, three hours of darkness per night. But, you know, I mean, it's who one knew? Of the most famous things about St. Petersburg at this time of year. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not. Anyway, England then. If this team wasn't called England, we'd be going crazy about them right now. A, a young team, a pacey team, a well-balanced team. Yeah, I mean, I think the pace thing is key. I think maybe only France in this competition are quicker. Pace almost throughout the side. And I think against maybe Tunisia, but certainly Panama, who looked really desperately slow. Um, I think that could be a really important factor. I personally think we're probably getting a little bit carried away based upon the fact that the PR around the team has been very good and they're all a nice bunch of lads. And Southgate's done a, a very good job. There's a lot of untested elements of this team and indeed about Southgate, who has done very well as a kind of overseeing role. And I really hope that whatever happens with this team, that there is some job for him at the Football Association, because I think he's brought a hell of a lot to the England party. But tactically, I mean, he, he's untested. You know, he hasn't managed since Middlesbrough the best part of 10 years ago, uh, with the exception of qualifiers against relatively, relatively weak opposition and friendlies where it's difficult to draw any conclusions from. So the jury's out for me. All right, well, he's going to be tested Monday night in Volgograd against a Tunisia team, a.k.a. the Eagles of Carthage, who have lost their key man in the build-up to the tournament, but who still represent a real threat, as Basil McDaddy now reveals. In the lead-up to this game, the press and England supporters have really been overlooking the Carthage Eagles. The fact that Tunisia doesn't really have a star player in the mould of Mohamed Salah or Riyad Mehrez makes that completely understandable. Tunisia has a really, really strong midfield. They are extremely adept at functioning as a collective. They're really good at the counter as well. And that was on full display in a 1-0 friendly loss against Spain and a 2-2 friendly draw against Portugal in the lead-up to the World Cup. One player I'd look out for is Montpellier's Elias Sriri, who's one of many players Nabil Malul incorporated into the side after securing World Cup qualification. So if England don't score within the first 20 to 30 minutes of this match, then I think the balance starts to tip in favor of Tunisia. And it wouldn't surprise me to see them nick a point or maybe even get a goal and nick all three points from this game. Top work once again from Basel. It's really interesting. Tunisia have changed their team dramatically, calling up a whole bunch of players who weren't actually born in Tunisia. And when you look at their pre-tournament form, some great results there, drawing 2-2 with Portugal. They're really close to getting a, a, a goalless draw with, with Spain. What do you think, Michael? I think that they'd be very, very happy with a 0-0, and I think their team selection will reflect that. The one player that I think uh, everyone will know who's watched the Premier League is Wabi Kazri, mm. who we know as a number 10 or a wide midfielder drifting in. It looks like he's going to start up front. Now, I don't think that's an attacking plan. I think that's because he doesn't really do his defensive duties, so they don't want him in a wide area having to track wing-backs because he just won't do it. But they need him in the side because he's a very good set-piece taker. And I think basically playing him up front is where he will do least damage. And if he doesn't hold up the ball and if he doesn't run in behind, so be it. He's in the side and if they get a free kick, he can visit in. Or so, a corner. He can score from corners as well. Or indeed a corner. That's a very good shout. So mm. I think set-pieces will be their, their main threat. And I think they'll be defensive. And if they get a nil-nil... They've done a very good job. Well, by the way, the referee is from Colombia, Wilmar Roldan, is described in various media sources as, as blundering. Yeah, he so. had a difficult Confederations Cup mm. where he went to VAR and upgraded a yellow card to a red card, but in that instant didn't spot that he'd actually shown it to the wrong player. <laughs> so. 
that could happen to anyone. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when you hear about these refereeing mistakes, you do have more sympathy. For example, everyone knows the Graham Pohl story where he famously showed Joseph Simunic of Croatia three yellow cards. Yeah. But the mistake he made was that Simunic was born in Brisbane, brought up in Australia... And when he talked to him the first time, he spoke back to Graham Paul in an Australian accent. So he wrote it on the Australia side of his his card yes. and then didn't see the number. So it's a stupid error. But then you, you hear that and you think, oh, that's the kind of thing I get tricked by as well. And you have more that's sympathy That's why you're not him. a world-class referee. Well, exactly. But that's I, w- like I, I want to have sympathy A World Cup equivalent of, of what did for uh, Richard Attenborough in The Great Escape. No? Oh, yeah. yeah. It wasn't Richard Attenborough, though. Oh, it was it not? No, it was Gordon Cowell. Oh, ah, that you've mistaken his identity. <laughs> <though>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's England against Tunisia. What's going to happen, James Horncastle? It's going to be a very tight game, but I think England will win one, though. Jack Lang? I think it will be a tight England win as well. But while we're on it, the mm. I know a lot has been made of Southgate naming his team early. Oh, yeah? And to me, that just seems such an obvious thing to do, but apparently not, because interesting quotes from Rob Green a couple of weeks ago, he said that in 2010, Fabio Capello gave him two hours' notice before the USA game which, of course, he dropped that famous clangor. So perhaps Southgate's plan is less common than we would assume. All right. The other game in Group G taking place on Monday is Belgium-Panama. Previous meetings, none. Although I read that Belgium ominously hammered Panama's stronger Central American neighbours, Costa Rica, 4-0 last Monday in a friendly. 4-1. Yeah, because Costa Rica took the lead. Okay, 4-1. But, you know, given... The Michael Cox law of geographical proximity Mm. suggests that they should have an easy time of it against Costa Rica's neighbours, Panama. Yeah, great preparation. Panama, they're physical, shall we say. They're not the the greatest technically. They've done wonderfully well to get to the tournament, but I do think that they will be... uh, The the referee might be involved, shall we say. And they haven't been involved so far, actually. They haven't shown any red cards so far, have they? But... uh, Panama would be a strong candidate to get the first one, I would suggest. Do you have Belgium among your favourites for the tournament this year, James? I haven't really seen them tested so far um, because in, in the friendlies that they've played, I think one of Martinez's first one, if not his first one, was against Spain and they lost that. They played Portugal, the first of their three warm-up games for this. They drew. I didn't think they were particularly convincing. And they haven't really played against teams that have put their defence under a lot of pressure in, in, in warm-ups. And that's been an issue because... Vincent Company went off injured in the game against Portugal and they played Lauren Simon, the standby centre-back, in the game against Egypt. And then they played Boyata in the, in the game against Costa Rica. And they looked uncertain, even though they weren't coming under kind of sustained pressure. And I think there's a couple of things about this Belgium side that I look at and think, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. One is they only play one holding midfield player, and that's Axel Witzel. The wing-backs are very attacking. One is Yannick Ferreira-Carrasco, who is not a wing-back. He is a winger. The other is is Mounier. And then up front, they've tried to do everything to get all of the guys who've got the most goals in the team, which means playing Dries Mertens, who plays as a central striker for Napoli, or out left for Napoli, on the right-hand side. They're fine against teams like Panama and Tunisia, but when they play against maybe England, they'll already have qualified perhaps. But when they get in the latter stages, I think that would be a bit of an issue. I think in the latter stages what will happen is they'll move De Bruyne into Merton's role. Merton's will drop out and they'll bring in Fellaini or Dembele to sit alongside Ritzel. I mean, that's what should happen with any defensively minded manager. Whether they've got a defensively minded manager, I'm not sure. It's good at cup football. 
Eden Hazard, very much Belgium's Sean Maloney, this mm. tournament. Apparently he's fresher mentally than he's been for a long time. Thibaut Courtois is also saying that Hazard is in the best shape he's ever seen him. Right. So that probably right. doesn't bode well for it, Panama. If he's fresher mentally than when he didn't try for that whole season, he must be in great shape. He must mm. be very relaxed. I mean, the team is built around him rather than De Bruyne. And I think the issue watching them in, in the warm-up games was that De Bruyne was much better when he had like Fellaini next to him, someone who's actually just going to sit there and shut down so De Bruyne could actually get further forward and play. The rest of the time, it was it looked a bit disjointed, really. So, well, we'll see what they make of Panama then on Monday. Now, also coming up on day five of this World Cup in Nizhny Novgorod, the Swedes, were they happy about Germany losing to Mexico in the other game from this group? We asked Frida Fagerlund from Afton Blade in Stockholm, and no, no, she was not. I'm trying to stay positive. It's always very fun with unexpected results, but this obviously means that Sweden really, really need three points tomorrow against South Korea. And it also means that the game against Germany is going to be even tougher. So the defense is going to be put under so much pressure against Mexico. I mean, Irving Lozano looked really dangerous today. Chitaritu run like the wind together with Carlos Vela. So they really, really need to do a great game in the defense if this is going to turn out well. The best in the team is obviously Emil Forsberg. He really needs to step up if this is going to turn out well. We know that he has so much quality in him. But also, you know, the central midfielders, Albin Ekdal and Sebastian Larsson, they really need to hold hold up the team. Frida Fagelund from Afton Blood. It could be a low-scoring game, this, I'm thinking, given that South Korea came into the tournament on a run of just one win from their previous six friendlies. Sweden haven't scored a single goal in their last three friendlies. Huh. Yeah, and they qualified in that playoff with what a Daniel De Rossi on goal, was it not? Well, so, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That performance against Italy, which was an impressive one, specifically defensively, with uh, Grunkvist and Lindelof just dealing with anything really that came their way. Equally, the the victory was it two one? They beat France in the qualifying round. Yeah, although that was a, a big Hugo Lloris mistake towards mm. the end in Solna, which was it Ola Toivonen took advantage of. So, I think yeah, they. They will take advantage of mistakes. Yeah, if you beat yourself, Sweden will quite happily let that happen. I don't. I think they find it hard to actually beat teams. That's the issue. I was quite impressed with them in that Italy game, oh. in, in the sense that they did very, very basic things, but in an organised sense. So they played very unashamedly long ball football. But every time they hit it forward to Toivonen or Berg, he always had three men just behind him. It, you know, it reminded me a little bit of Allardyce's Bolton in the sense that they were very brutal and direct but they did it very well and also just things like the way they boxed in the opposition at throw-ins and they pressed very well and won the ball quickly you know they're not going to be entertaining but I do think they are quite well organised of course this group is now wide open Michael Mm. after Germany's defeat to Mexico on Sunday do you feel that Sweden could be in with a shot not anymore actually I I, I quite fancied them to surprise Mexico I do, but the, I fancied them to finish ahead of Mexico. Okay. And, and now Mexico got three points against Germany. As you know, as Frieda says, I think that's a bad result for the Swedes, so I'm, I'm not surprised they're disappointed at that. Right, of course, there's also South Korea, isn't there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm good friends with a South Korean journalist who's incredibly pessimistic about their chances. All right. Just thinks they're going to embarrass themselves. So. Four years yeah. ago, when they, they left 
Brazil with a, a whimper. They returned home and were pelted with sweets. With toffees. Yeah, I don't know yeah. whether that's It's a an expression in, in South Korea, go eat toffee, which is, um, it's an insult. I mean, clearly. I go like eat toffee. toffee. I mean, That'd the, be great. In Brazil, the... the f- but they were actually pelted just to kind of... Because it was quite, it was quite a singular scene, wasn't it, at the mm. airport? Sorry, Michael. Yeah, it feels like the Asian teams could do with one of them getting to the, the latter stages. They the... couldn't win for toffee. Sorry, back to you, Michael. <laughs> in the last World Cup, there was five Asian sides. They all finished bottom of their group. Um, it felt like a few years ago that Japan and Korea and Australia, if we can count them in that confederation now, were really pushing on, going to become major forces. Not sure we've seen that, but um, it'd be nice to, to see one of those sides get through because I feel like it's... World Cup's become very Europe and South America dominated again after it seemed that there was more of a globalised uh, shift away from that. So I hope one of South Korea or, or Japan or maybe even Iran, of course, who won their opening game can get through to the next round. Mm. OK. Well, before we uh, shut up, we're going to be getting the answer to Jack's question. Who were the scorers of the three direct free kicks of Brazil 2014? Before we come on to that... Let's get the odds on all of Monday's games. Producer Ben speaking to Paddy Power. Thanks, Jimbo. Whoa, Lee, what a Sunday we've just had. I am exhausted already and I haven't been through the turmoil of England yet. Well, let's look ahead to Monday because uh, England are coming up. But before, before we talk about them, two huge games. <laughs> Sweden versus South Korea. What's the smart money here? I'm not sure is the honest answer. The odds I can tell you, Sweden are even money to win this match, which surprises me. Uh, the draws twenty-one to ten. South Korea three to one. Son Heung-min to score at any time is four to one. That sounds like good value to me. That does indeed. Now uh, in England's group, it's Belgium versus Panama. Um, obviously, Belgium are going to win this one. But mm-hmm. what happens if I wanted to to put some money on Panama? Am I am I crazy? Yes, and you probably lose that money, but you never know. Uh, for a two-team fixture, Panama 22 to one. It's the longest price of the tournament, uh, and you think they have no chance. Belgium are one to seven on with the draw six to one. You'd expect a Belgium goal fest. All right, and Gareth Southgate's three lions. Ooh. They're taking on Tunisia, the highest-ranked team in Africa. England traditionally awful in their opening game at the World Cup. Are they going to do something? And by something, I mean can they win or at least not lose? So the traders who are Irish, I point out, make this odds on for England four to eleven. Uh, from my experience of England tournaments, this will end either nil-nil or one-one, and be absolutely agonising. If you are pessimistic and fancy the draw, it's ten to three. Tunisia to win, which wouldn't be that much of a surprise to my mind, is nine to one. But surely this year, it's a new squad, it's a new attitude. We're going to do it, aren't we? Money back special on this one. Yeah, if England win, which as we said they should, uh, we will refund all losing correct score, goal score, and what odds paddy markets. I just hope they win. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. It's 18 plus only, begambleaware.org, and when the fun stops, stop. Jack, okay, so three direct free kicks were scored in Brazil 2014. Michael, James, have you got the answers? Hammers? Nope. I think Messi scored one. He did. Did Shakiri get one? No. Uh, David Luiz definitely scored one. That's two. There's one missing. And it wasn't Shakiri, but it was a Swiss player, would be my other clue. Ooh, Rodriguez? Rodriguez? Nope. Shaka? Nope. It was Blerim Jamaili, ah, who scored Jemaili in Switzerland's takes. big defeat to France. Wow, I've forgotten it already. 
Okay. Uh, hey, I tell you what, if you like uh, questions and that kind of thing, be aware that Monday evening, half-time of the England game, there'll be the return of our Totally Quiz. So uh, we'll have prizes and stuff and that kind of thing. Uh, join us at facebook.com slash show. And, of course, if you follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter, you can send us your questions and all that kind of thing. Facebook, there's videos, quiz, all that sort of stuff. Make friends with us listeners and uh, do hope you have a super monday we will be back at the end of the day or tuesday morning if you prefer with our take on day five for now it's many many thanks to james horncastle pleasure to jack lang thank you and to you michael cox thank you and you listeners have yourselves a great start to the week we'll be back with you shortly you've been listening to the totally football show a muddy knees media production subscribe now and get the latest episode delivered right to your phone for free And seeing as you're still here, here's an extract from the new Gazza in Italy audiobook. It's written by Daniel Storey, read by James Richardson and published by HarperCollins. Have a listen and if you like what you hear, you can download it from iTunes or Audible for just £4.99. Remember, it's exclusively an audiobook and it's called Gazza in Italy. It was never in doubt that Gascoigne would be a hit in Rome, but he was popular wherever he laid his hat. The boast that he was the reason for Lazio's attendances rising by between 5,000 and 10,000 in his first season would seem doubtful given that Lazio as a whole improved significantly on the pitch. But President Cragnotti was in no doubt. He added 10,000 to our season ticket sales and he has established himself immediately as our fans' hero. That was instantaneous, he told The Independent in 1992. Gazamania certainly survived the thousand-mile journey from London. There is no secret recipe for a footballer to secure cult hero status. Supporters want to feel close to players and develop an affinity with them through shared experience. That might stem from a player's place of birth, upbringing or family history. But with Gascoigne in Rome, it came purely through the warmth of his personality. Gascoigne was the archetypal cult hero. He was fun-loving and crazy, as is every loyal Italian football fan, but he balanced that with a demonstrative respect for their worship of the team. Lazio fan Luca Pasqualini said exactly that to 442 magazine in 2017. It was obvious from the start that he was different from the others. He was a man, a friend, a joker, but above all, a player who respected the Lazio shirt, something a lot of people forget today. He always had a lot in common with the supporters, the respect, the will, the passion and the fantasy. There was a time when Gaza, Lazio and the fans were the same thing. But cult hero status often begins far earlier than the start of a player's professional career. It has roots in football's role in childhood, and therefore what becoming a star player means to the individual. It is something that cannot be manufactured, but grows organically. I started off with a tennis ball, I took it everywhere, Gascoigne once told Shortlist magazine. Then, when I was seven, my dad came back from working as a hod carrier in Germany and brought me a football. I kicked that thing for hours and hours. I was obsessed. It seemed to stick to my feet. I was eight and playing against 12-year-olds and seemed to be beating them for fun. This is a story retold and relived by so many of the game's greats across South America, Africa, Eastern Europe and, for Gascoigne, on the streets of Dunstan. He may have become a superstar through circumstance, but that was never his intention nor his desire. He was a football supporter who bridged the gap into professional football but continued to blur the lines between these two worlds until they could not be distinguished from one another. Had Gascoigne not been a footballer, 
he would have been partying with his mates, the joker of a group of men who followed their club and maximised the fun in doing it. He still did most of that, even as a footballer. The stories about Gascoigne's time in Rome are numerous and legendary, and some must be apocryphal. After his then-partner Cheryl returned to England, Gascoigne was protected by two bodyguards, Gianni and Augusto. The pair ended up being his guardians and close friends, but were always involved in his scrapes. One night they burst into Gascoigne's apartment after hearing him scream, only to find a pair of shoes left in front of the balcony door to give the impression that he had jumped off onto the floor below. Cue Gascoigne, hidden in the bathroom, in fits of giggles. It prompted a gun to be pointed at Gascoigne's head until a promise came that the incident would not be repeated. Gascoigne also remembers Gianni and Augusto having responsibility for guarding a bank vault in Rome city centre and persuading them to let him enter the vault and sit on the piles of money on the promise of not interfering with the notes. Needless to say, Gascoigne was soon throwing wads of cash into the air. He also caused quite a stir on Rome's social scene, with the most famous tale coming when Gascoigne was dining in one of the city's most exclusive restaurants. Struggling to make the waiter understand what he wanted to order, Gascoigne dived into the lobster tank, grabbed his victim and handed it to the waiter to take to the kitchen. To repeat, the line between reality and apocrypha may be blurred. Still, a good story is a good story. On the pitch, crucial to his cult hero's status was Gascoigne's reputation as a player who excelled in moments. His consistency of performance and availability might have fluctuated wildly in Rome, but the Pescara goal and late Roma equaliser were not just among the best moments of Gascoigne's season. They were Lazio's highlights as well. For better and worse, he has always had a habit of making sure the spotlight focused brightest and longest on him. Gascoigne appreciated his role within the ecosystem of Lazio and Italian football. His job was not simply to train hard or score goals, and sometimes he didn't even manage that, but to entertain. As the great Liverpool manager Bill Shankly said when asked how he would like to be remembered, that I've been working for people honestly all along the line, for people in Liverpool that go to Anfield, that I've been working for them to try and give them entertainment. To hear the full story of Gaza in Italy, download the exclusive audiobook on Audible or iTunes. place i go for a bit of peace and to shout as loud as you can this is where the dog's gone again he wanders here to think oh, you could lose yourself in those patterns this is where we strip off and the troubles melt away i think it's the wind turning your cheeks pink like that was our last summer together but it still feels like home these are the places that make us discover yours national trust forever for everyone